This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, a podcast with a worldwide listenership that explores the broad world of preservation from every angle, from drones to mudlarking and everything in between. Now, let's get preserving. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. We're very excited today to be in the field with PreserveCast. Normally, I'm doing this from behind my desk in uh, Frederick County, Maryland. But today, we're in Anne Arundel County, Maryland, in the uh, city of Annapolis, sitting on the grounds of the historic State House. We're actually sitting in a circa 1730-era building, the old Treasury Building, which is currently serving as the site office for a pretty complex and really important project that's happening here in the state, which is the complete overhaul of the Statehouse Dome. And overseeing that project on behalf of the state of Maryland um, is the Chrisman Company. And we're going to be talking with Drew Brown of Chrisman about what they're doing here. And then the conversation will continue with several tradespeople who are working on the project. Because as we often say, both at Preservation Maryland and here on PreserveCast, that without the trained hands to do this work, preservation is basically just good intentions. Um, And so we actually need to have people who can do the work. So, Drew, it's good to have you here today. before we get too far into the conversation about Chrisman and the State House and all the cool things that we can see from the window we're sitting next to, um, where did you grow up and, and what was sort of your path to preservation? So I uh, grew up in Texas and then throughout the country, Alaska, New York here, North Carolina. Been in the trade since 1993. Um, started my life as a carpenter building custom homes, um, historic restoration work in North Carolina. And moved up um, just through some great opportunities and some great mentors to opportunities here with Chrisman. And we mostly do historic preservation work here in the district and DMV and just get, you know, these great opportunities to be on these kind of projects. It's it's really neat. So for those of you who aren't familiar and people listening who don't know about Chrisman, let's talk a little bit about uh, the, the company. Um, what they do, um, where you're located, um, sort of the, the scale of the work, and then we'll talk about specific projects. So, Christman's been around since 1894, um, headquartered in Lansing, Michigan. Um, our regional office here is, is headquartered in Sterling, Virginia. And we work in the, in the DMV, a lot of work on Capitol Hill um, with the AOC, um, and now here in Maryland um, for the State House. Um, and so the scale of the projects, maybe you, you talked about AOC, um, that's not, not Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, that's, uh, the architect of the Arch capital. Of the cap- yes, architect um, of the capital. And, uh, and so, maybe, yeah, maybe paint the picture for some of the projects that you have worked on so far. So scale-wise, um, we have projects anywhere from, you know, two or three million to um, Cannon House office building size that's three quarters of a billion dollars as a mega project joint venture. Um, and I think the Cannon's a outlier. That's a very unique opportunity for everybody on the involved in that project, 10-year joint venture. Um, projects like the State House here um, really do fit with the types of, I don't know if scale, it's more the, t- the challenge. It's not you know, scope-wise, this isn't a massive project like your traditional, you know, building um, restoration project. 
It's more the, the complicated uh, nature of it. So I think that that's probably a good place for us to pick up with the story of the statehouse itself. Um, let's do some background on this. I mean, we'll talk about the scope, but I mean, obviously you're not a statehouse historian, but um, we, uh, you, you clearly have, I'm sure, have gotten to know it and its history a little bit. So talk to us about the history of this site and the work that you're doing. The site, you know, this, for what, I guess what really hits home for me is, you know, this was once our nation's capital. You know, George Washington gave up his commission here. You know, just in our in our office space here with the, old, the Treasury building, just the idea that, you know, basically all the money was stored here for the whole state at one point is just fascinating. It's, you know, being in here, seeing the history, touching the same things that, you know, George Washington and, and folks like that touched and knowing that we're preserving those those features just really hits home and it and it really gives everybody you know on our company just a lot of pride in what we're doing so it is the um, oldest continuously operating state house in the nation um, it is where as you sort of alluded to George Washington um, resigned his commission and went back to civilian life it is the um, the place where the peaceful transfer of power um, really first happened um, and and sort of the, the roots of of that goes back to this specific place. Um, and it, it is a just a delightfully beautiful building as well. Um, maybe we can hear from you about sort of the scope of this work, what you what it is you guys are, are working on and what you're doing. Sure. So we're restoring the exterior dome almost completely. We've we've stripped the, the existing paint system off. We're restoring that with a, a linseed oil-based paint system. We're taking off the existing slate shingles, restoring and replacing those. Um, the existing wood shingles, we're removing almost all the existing wood shingles and replacing that as well with, with cypress to match more what was here originally. And I mean, every preservation project comes with its challenges. Um, anything surprising here? Um, anything that just really kind of threw you guys for a loop? Or has it been pretty straightforward? I would say nothing has been straightforward at all. Um, and with any, you know, building this, this size and age, we expect there to be a lot of un unexpected things, whether it's you know, your, what you would think would be unexpected with um, hidden damage um, that you can't you can't expect, but you know you'll find. We've we found that um, just from the beginning, building the the scaffold system on here, we had to install additional structural support in the attic just to carry the weight um, and figure out that engineering as we were procuring the rest of the project, which was not expected. Um, even stripping, you know, the the acorn gilding, um, determining how it was how it was constructed, the new system. Almost every process was kind of an unknown, almost almost like a design build new building. We were designing and figuring out the right materials and methods for just about everything as we go as we went, and a lot of that was just through a lot of mock-up processes on the ground and on the building. 
Yeah, I think that people would be surprised to know um, just the level of challenges kind of going into this, particularly for something that is so well known in the state that there are still surprises um, kind of as you go. So we're going to be talking here in a moment with several of the different trades associated with this project. Um, you know, you, you've you've got some interesting challenges on the building. Um what kind of level of restoration are we talking about in this building? And, and talk to us about some of the trades that um, have been really invested in this project. So our the trades that are invested are, are absolutely expert in their field. We've um, and they're not go fast trades. I mean, they're the the slate work, even removing the old, the new slate. Um, the techniques to match what's there and, you know, even things like the, the dome, both dome features, they're not just perfect. They're every facet's a weird angle. There's so many mock-ups for each piece that they have to do. And the, the quality of the craftsmen are just, it's just amazing watching them figure out how to make everything work with, with the wood shingles, with the slate, um, even the, the paint with the linseed oil system was very new to basically everybody involved and determining as we went how many coats of paint, how to, how long it would take to cure, how it will work on this building compared to any other building um, with the weather here. All that took and is still taking just an inordinate amount of time and just the, the expert nature just of, of our craftsmen just to make this happen and they're working together with us and it's just with the amount of setbacks you can have the the way the team is working is just phenomenal but it's because of their their knowledge and and skills that are making this work i mean i can i can lead the team our you know tim our superintendent can make this happen but we couldn't do it without these guys that you'll talk to so um I think that's a great sort of segue. We'll be talking to some of these folks. We always like to ask people sort of two final questions when they join us, which is, um, what's next? What are you working on next? People, I think, always find that fascinating. And do you have a favorite historic place or site? So those are your two final takeaways. Well, I'm I'm working on another very exciting project in pre-construction for the uh, Maryland Motor Vehicle Office. Um, and I say that ingest it's very it's compared to it's the exact opposite of of this project um, but I would say the Cannon House project is probably the the most challenging and just kind of overall in, neat project I've worked on um, not just the size or the well part of it's the size I mean the, the building itself is you know over 800,000 square feet and being the oldest congressional office building, there's so much history being there and you walk in the caucus rooms and you think about what's happened here, what you see on TV today. And, you know, that's, again, it's, you take a lot of pride in, in touching those things and the features and, you know, and, and the, the different, the millwork and every, every part of it is just such a unique challenge and the historic significance just, just makes it very exciting. And I don't know if I'll have another project that just quite that uniquely cool. Yeah, I mean, it's so big that um, perhaps by the time you're done with it, you can start over again. Uh, Maybe. Let's <laughs> say <laughs> so at 800,000 square feet, you might be close. Well, this has been very cool and I think a great sort of entree to 
the rest of this conversation to talk about the folks who are, are putting their hands in this building and, and working to preserve it. Um, thanks so much for joining us today and for inviting us in. Oh, anytime. Thank you. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we're continuing our conversation here on the Statehouse grounds in our In the Field PreserveCast episode. And we're talking with Peter Gambardella um, of Worcester Eisenbrandt, um, which is a firm that we have talked to a few times before on PreserveCast um, with different folks associated with them and the work that they've done, um, not only here in the state of Maryland, but really all across the region and all across the country for that matter. But uh, Peter is specifically working um, on this project, overseeing a host of different trades um, that uh, the talented team at Worcester Eisenbrandt is bringing to this project. So, Peter, um, let's talk about the trades. How did you kind of get into this line of work? What, what's your background? And then we'll talk specifically about what um, Worcester Eisenbrandt is doing on this site. Well, I have sort of a atypical background for construction. I, I started in theater, actually, building scenery. So I was a carpenter um, and worked in theaters in the area all through college. And uh, after college, I decided... You know, I wanted to find something a little more substantial. They don't pay very well in the theater <laughs> industry. Uh, so I looked for other carpentry jobs, and um, someone actually uh, recommended Worcester Eisenbrand to me. So I started um, initially as a carpenter, but not for very long. Um, pretty soon after that, they pulled me in uh, to be a field engineer and then um, basically worked my way up to a project manager. So your project managing uh for Worcester Eisenbrandt. What does that entail on a project like the Statehouse Dome restoration? Well, I have to familiarize myself pretty deeply with the drawings and specifications um, that they, you know, the work that's called for and what our, our particular scope of work is on the project. And then um, throughout, you know, managing um, what the crews on site are working on, making sure they're sticking to those plans and as well as addressing uh, new things that may come up during the process, which there are many of in, on a historic project, um, as well as uh, what our crew in our shop is working on, because we've got a lot of our work uh, going on in the shop as well. Um, so it's a lot of um, making sure that all that is going according to plan, acquiring materials, um, and there's also you know job cost-associated uh, tasks, making sure we're on budget, working with Chrisman uh, for all that sort of thing. And in terms of the trades that are actually on site, which of the trades are you guys managing? And then maybe we'll talk about some of the folks who are doing that work. Sure. Yeah. So we're focused on um, millwork and windows predominantly. We're um, restoring the windows that are up on the dome as well as the balcony railing. They call it the balustrade. And any, you know, minor... Um, trims like cornices and that sort of thing that are wood. So all all of our crews on site are carpenters. And when it comes to doing millwork, um, you know, there's some pretty unique profiles on this. Like probably nothing. I'm certain nothing is stuck. Uh, obviously, where do you guys mill that? Do you have to go off to? Do you have a partner that does that? Do you guys do it yourself? How are you actually cutting the profiles of that kind of stuff when when necessary to fix it? Yeah, we have a full um, back at our headquarters in Baltimore. We've got a full mill shop. Um, we don't grind our own knives typically. We have uh, folks who will 
we, we provide a profile to them and they'll grind a knife for us, but then we shape the wood there at our, um, at our headquarters, at our shop. And in terms of the, how many, num- you know, carpenters do you have on a project like this, you know, redoing this large, extremely prominent, you know, we were, we were talking with Drew previously about sort of the, the scale and complexity and scope of this project. Um, how many carpenters, I mean, give people a sense are doing it and how long have you been out here and will you be out here? Um, we've got about four to six uh, carpenters here on any given day. Um, and we've been here, I believe, since July. So we're, you know, we've been working continuously since then with, you know, varying the size of the crew as needed. Um, but that's that's a pretty typical size crew uh, for work like this. There's a lot made about the the need for tradespeople and the challenge of getting just um, people to work on jobs. Are you guys seeing that sort of play out in your own work? Is it is it a challenge to kind of always keep fully staffed up? Is there always a need if someone's listening to this and is thinking about a new career? Is uh, preservation carpentry uh, a place where they could find work, you think? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we're always looking for skilled people for this type of work. It's, you know, like they say, um, for all the trades these days, a lot of the people who've been doing it a long time are either retiring or um, they found other work during the pandemic. But, you know, we, we're always hungry for people who've got the skills to do this type of work and, and people who are interested in, in it even. You know, we're, we're happy to um, train people in the craft um, if they're interested. So you got trained in the craft. Now you're managing. Um, you moved up quickly that way. Um, do you still work with your hands at all? Um, very rarely for the company. I do on my own as a hobby here and there, but, uh, you know, and and fixing things up around the house. Um, but for the most part, no, I'm, I'm I'm strictly in the office. And do you enjoy that? Is it, was it just the right progression? Do you miss the hands-on component? I think I keep busy enough outside of the office on things to satisfy my desire for, you know, you know, working on that type of thing, small projects here and there. Um, but I really enjoy working, you know, in the position I'm in right now because, um, I still get to work closely with the foreman on site and the craftsmen and, you know, go through the problem solving process and working through the details of how these components go together and how things are built. So it's still kind of, you know, tickles that itch I have for, you know, um, building things and, and, uh, you know, having a tangible result into the work we do. So this is a big project and it's, um, you know, big in the sense, not only just in the scale of the, of the dome, but obviously just prominent in terms of it's probably one of the most iconic buildings in the state of Maryland and certainly um, one of the most visible. Um, but what's next beyond this? Where, where do you head next? Do you know what your next project is that you'll be working on? Um, I'm not sure. I've got a couple others that are ongoing at the moment. Um, Any that you can talk about? Yeah, so I we just wrapped up work um, in Baltimore on the uh, the National Great Blacks and Wax Museum. I don't know if you're familiar, but it's a it's a wax museum um, specifically um, highlighting you know prominent blacks in in history uh, or in you know American history. Um, and that was an interesting project. It was like a terracotta facade um, that was you know um, built. Or I guess they it, w- it wasn't the original facade, but they put terracotta on when that was all the rage, you know, um, back at the turn of the century. 
and it was in disrepair, as many of them are. So we did full restoration on that facade as well as other window work and um, rough carpentry, doing building a new roof on the tower, that sort of thing. Very cool. Um, and before we go, we ask everybody this. Do you have a favorite historic place or site? Favorite historic place or site? Hmm, I'd have to think about that one. Um, well, we can we can make it a little simpler, which is what's the last one that you visited beyond the state house? Um, the last historic site I visited. Hmm. Um, I visited the actually the Capitol building in Austin, Texas. I guess that could be considered historic at this point. Um, my brother lives in Texas, so I went to see it and it's pretty grand. It's got a lot of pink marble and uh, it's it's amazing. Very cool. And uh, apparently you just go around to different state capitals, I guess. You just can't get enough of I them. I can't, yeah. <laughs> well, Peter, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. Well, this is Nick Redding again, coming to you live in this in-the-field recording of PreserveCast. And we've been talking with folks, not only with the Chrisman Company, but also we've been talking with folks from Worcester Eisenbrandt. And now we're going to be talking with Steve Walter from Murray Painting, um, one of the tradespeople um, involved in this project and the restoration of the Statehouse Dome. And we're doing this conversation not only to talk about a really cool project here in our backyard, but to talk about how all these different aligned and allied trades kind of come together to make a project possible. And um, Steve is from Michigan, but is working on a project here in Maryland, which gives you a sense for the skill and the quality of the team at Murray Painting. So Let's take a step back first before we talk about the specific project. And people like to know who we're talking to. So how did you, where were you born? And how did you get into the line of work that you're in today? I was born in Flint, Michigan back in 1972, if that tells you my age. Uh, I started right out of high school painting. Um, I had some family that were painters and wanted to know if I wanted a summer job after I got out of school. And here I am. You've been painting ever since. And did you, st you didn't start with Statehouse Capital Domes? No, I did not. No. I started out residential. Residential. Is that where I guess probably most people That's get where their Where most people start. Get their start. Um, and, you know, I think some people think of, you know, if they, I don't know if they always think of painting as one of the historic trades, but it's a critical component to it, particularly because you're having to deal with contaminants like lead and asbestos. And That's right. there's a lot of things that come into play. And as we've seen on certain projects, and even in this project, if you don't do it right the first time um, and spend the time in prep, um, that you end up kind of just throwing your painting money away. You, you wind up with a failed project and a lot of wasted money. Yeah. So you really need to... Like, and a black eye for the company. Yeah. And having a good painter, sometimes, I mean, it's just, it's just as critical as any other trade on a project. Correct. And in a project like this that we're talking about... Um, you know, it's it's a it's a just a critical component because this thing takes a beating not only because of how tall it is, but it's sort of in this maritime environment, taking sort of that brackish spray off of Chesapeake Bay. So, um, you know, obviously you 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 got into this at an early age. You've been working on projects um, for most of your adult life. Um, talk to us about how a Michigan company gets involved in a project halfway across the country in Maryland. Well, we uh, have a history with Chrisman. We've been doing a lot of work for Chrisman back in Michigan and a lot of good projects. And we've had real good quality people working with us. And it results in quality work and a good quality finished product. And after a few jobs like that, then your name gets put out. And how did you, I mean, you, you kind of 
I'm sure you made it sound simpler than it really was, but how did you make the jump from residential house painting to sort of these really big projects? Um, I would dabble doing some tr- some older church projects back in my younger days, back in the 90s. I would do a, a couple of repaints on the interiors of churches, stripping the old material off, doing any patching or plaster work that needs to be done, and then recoding. That's yeah. how I started. So you move from a house to a church. Churches are the gateway, and then from there, it's it's you kind of. And do you, does Murray do primarily commercial work now? They do. Uh, it's about fifty fifty commercial and industrial. Commercial and industrial, yep. okay, yep. but no residential, no. Not that I'm aware. No of. homes anymore, other than yours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you and and in terms of your role with Murray, how often on this project are you actually? scraping, applying, how much, how much are you getting your hands dirty these days? I'm getting my hands dirty every day that I'm here. We we don't do too much scraping. That was mostly done by the stripping company that came before us. But if there is some residual stuff that we can remove that's in a small amount, then we do that. So talk to me about the work that's being done here, because I think some people think of painting as Probably what they're familiar with in their own home, which is like, you know, prep involves maybe putting some tape up and maybe doing a couple little patches where there was a hole from hanging something. And then they go get a gallon at Lowe's and they slap it on and they dry and they stand back and think, wow, I did a really great job. This is a very different scale of projects. It is immensely different. We know that it's high up. We've heard about scaffolding being put on it and the challenges of just doing that. You're way up in the air doing this. But... The type of paint is unique. Why don't you talk us through like the scope of this kind of project? What it is that you're actually doing? We are. Uh, we have a product that we're using. It's out of Sweden, I do believe. It is called linseed oil paint, and we have to go through and prime and apply three top coats. Our primer consists of a mixture of seventy percent linseed raw linseed oil mixed with thirty percent linseed paint, linseed oil paint. And we go through and we have to prime the surfaces beforehand. And any nail heads we run across, we have to prime those with a special special product so they don't get any rust bleeding through. You have to prime every nail head that every you come across. Every nail, nail head that and we see. How many nail heads are we talking about? Oh, there's been a few hundred. And you can't miss one. You, you try not to. <laughs> but it happens. It happens. Uh, and it's up in the air, so it's not like someone's looking at it with a magnifying yes. glass. But it is quite the process. And three coats of this... How does linseed oil paint dry compared to like what you would be familiar with, like either just a traditional oil or even like a latex? Compared to latex, it dries very slow. You have to put it on very, very thin, thin coats as compared to latex where you can put it on moderately and it'll dry. But linseed oil, it, there's no impurities in it. So it, it basically air dries and what doesn't dry soaks into the wood. And... What's the advantage of it? Why would you do? Why would you do something this it, challenging? It lasts longer. The oils will penetrate into the wood and help preserve the wood. And if it does start to fade a little bit, you go go up there with some raw linseed oil on a rag, and you can start wiping it. And it'll look like new again. Wow! If you stay on top of the maintenance, like in all things with this, preservation, this linseed oil paint has been around for hundreds of years. And how often do you guys use it? Uh, here at Murray, this is our first time at Murray that I'm aware of using it, but I've used it once or twice in the past, back when churches, when I was doing churches back in the 90s. Wow. You know, it, it's always interesting when you sit down with a tradesperson and particularly somebody who's still doing it every day because, you know, we sort of said in the intro to this that 
preservation without the the trained hands to do it is basically just good intentions. Um, there is no preservation without people actually getting their hands dirty and doing the work. Yes, you have to care. Yeah, you have to care. Um, how if 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 someone was younger, thinking about getting into the trades, interested in you know doing the kind of work that you're doing, would you? What kind of advice would you offer them? I would say if you truly, really want to do it and try dabbling in it and to see if it's something you want to do, because it after a while it gets easier and easier to do, and it is it does pay very well. Yeah, um, and let's just talk kind of rapid fire about a couple of things. Strangest thing you've seen on a paint job. I'm sure oh, you've seen some weird stuff out there. Uh, probably just some real shoddy work. Shoddy work. Yes. What's the shoddiest thing you've seen? I mean, it's just... I've, I've seen paint jobs fail within a week because somebody didn't do their prep work, right? Yeah, and I think that that's a really ex- ex- good... Exposed exterior. Yeah, an important takeaway for people listening is that you got to do your prep work when yes. it comes to prep this. work is utmost importance. That's what makes your paint job. Um, so after the statehouse, where are you headed next? I don't know yet. Um, I heard I might be going to Washington, D.C. to work on the nation's capital there. They're they're stripping some limestone and recoding, so I'm, I might be getting a hand on that for a while. And how often do you get home? Seems like you're living on the road. I, you're a, you're a road preservation painter. It's been a while since I've been on the road this long. I try not to be because I have children now. Yeah. Whereas before I had children, it didn't really matter too much. Yeah, but you have something to get home for. Yes, but I was just home for a week previously last week, and I just got back last night. Fantastic. Well, um, before we go, we always like to ask people if they have a his favorite historic place, a place maybe that they fell in love with when they were younger or something that's special to them. Um, I would say for me, um, back home in Michigan, it would be Mackinac Island, Mackinac City. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty good one. That and uh, I don't know if you heard of it, but Greenfield Village and Henry Ford Museum. Yeah, it's a great Them one are really, really nice places to go. Well, you can't go wrong with either Memories of those. ever since I was a kid being there. Yeah, fantastic. And cool. I, I visit those places every once in a while still. Cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and for the good work that you're doing up there. We're uh, looking forward to seeing it all of its splendor once you're done. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast as we continue our conversation with tradespeople working on this really fantastic and one-of-a-kind project here in Annapolis, Maryland, the restoration of the Maryland Statehouse Capitol and the, the dome in particular. Uh, we've been talking with folks from uh, Worcester Risenbrandt from Chrisman that's overseeing the whole project from Murray Painting. And now we're going to be talking with our friends at Durable Slate um, who do projects not only here in Maryland, but really all across um, the region and all across the country for that matter. Um, And we're talking with Jason Lee, um, who we understand started his day today in Ohio. And uh, for those of you not familiar with the geography, that's a pretty good haul, six, seven hours away. Um, And the, the crew is, is, based out of Ohio. Um, So we've got people from all across the country working on this really interesting and um, fascinating project, but it's a a hell of a roofing job um, because it's got a lot of different roofs on it and a lot of different materials. So Jason, before we get into that and how you guys are actually accomplishing this work, I think people would be interested to know um, where you grew up and how you got into this line of work. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, I I grew up um, just outside of Huntington, West Virginia, um, I, um, attended you know, school up to, to high school in Huntington. And then I moved to, um, Columbus, Ohio to attend, uh, Columbus College of Art and Design. Uh, I completed a couple of years there and, um, then moved into the trades, um, which was, you know, a, 
it was something that I did growing up. My, my parents loved to, to buy houses that needed fixed. Um, and so every, every house that we, we purchased, we, we put a lot of work into. So um, I, I kind of learned different trades through that. I have relatives that are plumbers and electricians. And so I was, I was kind of an apprentice uh, throughout my years. Um, I, uh, after, after college, I, I got into um, masonry and then historic masonry. Um, which was at the time, this is, I've been in this for a while. So this was back really before the internet, uh, was had information readily available. And so, um, when, when I started in masonry, I, um, there was a lot of broken and cracked bricks. Um, and I was always told that the, the bricks were the problem. Um, after doing that for a while, I realized that maybe, maybe that's not the right way. And so I started going to the library and, and doing my research, um, and found out that it was actually the, the mortar, the new mortars that they were using that were the problem. Um, and so we, um, I, I transitioned into kind of creating a bit of a, um, traditional historic, uh, masonry restoration. Um, and I, um, did that for, Around a, around a decade, um, and then um, we uh, kind of got tired of running my own business, and, and Durable Restoration uh, is, a, is a pretty large business in central Ohio who also um, kind of was moving in the same direction I was with Historic Masonry, uh, and so I, I joined up with them um, and uh, actually joined up with them in the middle of winter, and of course there's no real masonry work in the middle of winter. Um, and so my first day I showed up and I was, uh, put to work humping slate up a roof. And so from there, I, uh, spent the next few years apprenticing with the, with the slaters and the, and the copper guys, um, and, and learned those trades also, which were, which was really fascinating. Um, it's a, I mean, slate, slate and copper has a, has a huge long tradition, uh, in the, you know, both here and in Europe. Um, so it was, uh, I was, with Durable has a has a wonderful apprenticeship program and a, a wonderful training program. Um, so, I, I um, took over some some large roofing projects, moved up into steeples um, and the the high end work, and have uh, been here for close to sixteen years now. Yeah, I think um, many people are you know probably familiar with Durable's roofing work, but obviously it's the Durable Restoration Company. So there's a little bit of everything kind of under that umbrella at Durable. Um, and I know you guys have done just a ton of work across Maryland and have always been um, very supportive of the preservation community in Maryland. Um, and um, and so it's, it's interesting to hear you talk about sort of coming to them as a mason and then getting into slate and things like that. Um, it's, it's obviously it's hard to find people doing slate um, and doing it well. There's a handful of, of groups out there and yours being one of them that does it. Um, Let's talk about the scale of, of this project that's happening here. Um, I think people might be surprised to hear that there is slate um, because you don't always see some of it up there. You see pieces of it. But is it all slate? Is it what are what exactly are you doing out there and how big is your crew? All right. So we're um, it's the, the building is um, a combination of a cypress shingle uh, on the walls and then a, a slate on the, the roofing portions. And so, um, you know, we're, we're working on kind of a combination of a shingle on an area, a cypress shingle on an area, um, and then above that, a, a, a slate area. Um, and then we'll go back into shingles again and then slate. Um, so it's, and of course, there's, there's copper interlaced in, in all of that. 
So it's quite the project. And how many people do you have working on it? How long you've been doing it? Um, well, we started in full force around the, the beginning of September. We were, you know, assisting in temporary dry in and, and decking repairs uh, throughout the summer. Um, our full crew, um, we kind of started at the, the beginning of September and we've, we're, we're continuing to add people as we go as more areas are, are opening up. Um, and so we, we currently have, um, I think, 12 people on site um, in combination of, of our sheet metal guys, our slaters and the, the shinglers. So we're, we're working multiple areas at the same time in order to be able to keep the schedule. And is that a pretty normal size crew? Is that seems big? It's a it's a pretty large crew, yeah. And that's that's you know simply due to the fact that we're we're on an expedited schedule. Expedited schedule, and it's a it's unique. It's not just one big flat roof. Correct. Yeah. So it's um, you know the the real challenge is there's really no part of this that doesn't require a skilled craftsman. There's there's no big open faces that um, you can th- just throw ten guys on and they just put a ton of slate on a day it's every single part of it is a you know every roofing area that we're doing has a curve on it so it's either a convex or a, a concave roof and so um, the guys have to be really conscientious of the slate they're putting on whether the thickness of the slate whether it has a bend in it or not um, the decking that they're applying that slate to whether or not it's sticking up a little bit um, so they're you know, we have guys that are just sorting through that slate to make sure that we're getting the best ones to go on the roof. Um, and we, we have guys that specialize in the decking that um, they go through. And if something's sticking up a little bit, instead of just putting the slate on, they um, go through and, and make sure that that decking's held down as tight as it can be, that it's not sticking up and, and going to cause an issue in the, in the final project product. Yeah, it's, a, it's um, you know, we'll have pictures associated with this in the show notes, but it is a, it is a challenging piece of roofing to work on. Um, in terms of the complexity of it, would you say that this is one of the more complex that you worked on or is it, are there a lot of really challenging, challenging ones out there and are there ones that pop out in your mind that you remember? Well, I mean, this, um, <clears throat> yeah, this is, this is definitely one of the most challenging projects, um, mainly due to the, the concave and convex portions of the roof. Um, what, what we refer to them as, as swoops, um, and, you know, it's, we, we do a lot of swoops, but they're not typically um, this severe. Um, and so in order to, to get the slate to lay properly, there, there's a lot of working each slate individual to, to get it to set. Um, there's, there's, of course, more complex roofs with intricate designs that, that all have to be mapped out and um, a lot more on the front end of, of making sure that all your lines are in the right place and um, each each style or shape or color of slate goes in the right place. Um, luckily on this, we, we have one color of slate, so we, we don't have an intricate design um, with, say, scallops or cut corners that, that also have to be integrated. But um, the, the actual process of installing those slates, is, is just, this is definitely one of the more complex projects. And where do you actually get the slate? I think some people would be interested to know where that actually yeah, comes so from this, nowadays. This is a, a North Country slate. Um, so a North Country black. Um, it's, it comes out of a really nice... Really nice quarries, um, you know, up in uh, Vermont and Canada. There's there's a good vein that runs up through right now, um, and so we're we're able to get a, a good solid slate. That's that's um, a good 200 plus year slate um, that gets that does actually come out of the quarry at a, at a really consistent thickness, um, and it's very workable. Um, they're they're not overly brittle. Um, a lot of slates are um, they they don't like to be cut into a sharp angle. Um, you'll you'll lose a lot of corners on them. Um, so this is this is an excellent slate for this situation um, where every single roof, since it's eight sided, 
Um, every roof has a hip, and those hips have to be mitered, and, and you want nice crisp corners on those. So for people out there who have a slate roof and they, you know, it's a sort of just a simple hip roof or something, imagine the the challenges of putting this on. Um, you know, and, and even even a regular home slate roof is is challenging, but this is really a next level. You know, for people who are listening, you know, there's a lot of um, conversation these days, and, and we're part of it about trying to make sure that, that sort of that next generation of tradespeople is there. Someone's listening who either wants to change careers or they're young and they're interested in maybe getting into the trades. Do you have any advice for them? You've, you've had an interesting kind of career doing it, you know, on your own and then being a part of this big firm that's doing really amazing work, but advice for somebody who might be thinking about getting into it? I think that obviously there's, there's uh, plenty of trade schools that you can, you can go to and attend. Um, if um, you're interested in, in getting into um, this type of historic work, um, the best way to learn is to, is to contact a company like Durable Slate um, to come and work with us and apprentice with the, the guys that are in the field. Um, there's, um, it's, Working with the guys that have been doing it for 20 years, day in and day out, is the way to, to learn a traditional trade. Um, there's, you know, these, these guys have been doing it for so long. They have such a wealth of knowledge, and they're all extremely willing to, to teach um, people that are interested and, and willing to work and, and learn that trade with them. So what's next for you? Where's the next project? That is a good question. Um, Hopefully in Ohio. <laughs> well, I, I very rarely, um, I'm... I travel uh, pretty consistently to, to whichever project is um, the most complicated at the time. Um, and so, we, you know, we, we currently have a, a very also have a very large uh, copper dome that we're working on in Lincoln, Illinois. Um, and so it's looking like I'll probably be heading there after this to, to help wrap that up. And we always ask this of everyone. Do you have a favorite historic place or site or a place that maybe growing up um, – sort of spoke to you, sparked the interest. Favorite historic place or site, huh? Well, we'll, we'll, we'll throw you a softball, which is, what was the last historic place you went to? Well, I mean, currently, I guess my favorite historic place right now is Annapolis, Maryland, because um, that's, that's where I'm at. It's, it's one of the, the wonderful things about this job is I, I get to travel all over the country and, and visit new towns and, and get an idea of what those towns are. And, and Annapolis has a, um, a wonderful um, spirit to it, a, a great energy. Uh, the people here are great. Um, and obviously there, there is just a wealth of history in this town. And, um, you know, when I, when I get a few minutes, I do like to, to walk around and, and see the buildings and, and learn more about it. Cool. Well, thanks so much for joining us today and for the good work that you're doing up there. We're looking forward to seeing when it's all done. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to PreserveCast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening and keep on preserving.